everyone. Welcome to the fourth part in Nyack Cast coverage of an amazing new anthology entitled My Shadow is My Skin. I'm Nyack Comms Director Manamo Satabi here again with Research Fellow Dr. Asal Rad. And this week we're joined by Ms. Shukufe Rajabzadeh, who contributed a beautiful piece to the anthology entitled My Mom Killed Michael Jackson. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, That's of course. Great title, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My mom killed Michael Jackson. The yeah, it's an intention grabber for sure. <laughs> you know what's funny? I mean, I was going to bring this up later, but um, the first thing I saw when I when I when I like saw the word Michael Jackson, my initial thought was every Iranian I know has a story about Michael Jackson. They do. Yeah, it's very true. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, and, and we'll delve into that. But uh, Shukva, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself first and how you got involved with this project, your background, education, anything else you want yeah. to share? Yeah, thank you. Um, so thank you so much again for having me. It's a really a pleasure to be speaking with both of you. Um, so I am currently a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley. I study English literature. I'm in the Department of English Literature, but um, I, my research is on the history of Islamophobia and the racialization of Muslims in pre-modern England, so before 1600. Um, and then I also have, um, I also work a lot in a kind of anti-racist pedagogy and inclusivity. Um, it's one of my, uh, it's, it's something that's very important to me. And, um, and then, but I did a creative writing minor in Berkeley. And so I've always been writing kind of creative, creatively in one way or another. And so, um, this is actually a piece. My mom killed Michael Jackson is a piece that I was working on in a UC. I started to work on, um, in my, uh, early in graduate school, um, as part of a class I took with Dr. Beth Piatotti, who was teaching a class called Writing Across Genres, and it was in the Ethnic Studies Department. And so this piece, the, the, the idea of the class was organized around reading authors, um, works by authors who in genres that you don't often associate with them. So, for example, mm-hmm. we, read Edwidge, we read Edwidge Dantecott's uh, memoir, Brother, I'm Dying, or we read like Toni Morrison's speeches. And so this kind of came out of, interestingly, a class where people are kind of bridging, where we're focusing on the way authors are kind of bridging between genres or jumping between genres and moving between worlds of writing. Um, and so this was, I start, I wrote the first draft there and kind of had, I got feedback for that there. Um, so yeah, and now I have, along with, um, I, I actually, I started a graphic kind of blog memoir with my sister, Rehana Rajabzadeh, who's very funny. Um, and she shows up in this story. She's kind of the main character in, in my, in my contribution anthology. And it's called always not quite about kind of being always not quite an identity. Um, and so we publish like little snippets of that on our medium. Where, uh, where can we find that? It's on your medium. Yeah, it's on medium and it's at always not quite one, like the number one. Yeah. Great. So we'll make sure to put a link to that in the podcast description, just in case everyone, anyone wants to check it out. I know I certainly will be. Um, so yeah, sorry. Um, so like I said, you know, immediately I was like, this is yet another one of those. Every Iranian has a specific association with Michael Jackson. Um, and you look, your, the way you took this on was fascinating because you largely focused on music. Um, and you know, it started with you not really knowing anything about him, which was actually, I think the most fascinating part because I think most of my cousins in Iran 
are obsessed. Yeah. So I guess my first question, I got to ask, how did you not know about Michael Jackson? So I didn't really, like, I just, I know it's funny. I mean, now it's so funny because he's, he formed such an important part of my whole like childhood and my identity in so many ways. But I think it was because one of the things that's so interesting about it is that because we grew up here and Michael Jackson, like people listened to it, people listened to him, of course, but it wasn't like something that was really being played in our house regularly. Well, it was like playing constantly everywhere in Iran. For some reason, like in our communities, like in our, like our Muslim communities, our Iranian communities, like, I don't know, it was like in sync, you know, that was like, there was like in sync Destiny's Child, like they took up so much more space than Michael Jackson did. <laughs> um, so I'm sure I heard him, but I think it was, I don't think it was just the fact that, I don't think it was just like hearing Michael Jackson. I think we like definitely knew of Michael Jackson. We had heard his music. It was going there and then being like, which song do you like? Like, what about this one? And what about this one? And, the, and they had the lyrics memorized and they had the music, they had the video game. Like they played the Michael Jackson, like video game where he would do like the moonwalk and you'd have to do little challenges with the moonwalk across the screen. It was like that. It was, they knew so much about him. They had his costumes that they switched into. They like court, like they spent hours choreographing dances to his, like that mirrored the music video. So I think it was that we had no idea, like the specifics, like we couldn't like sing a song by like, we could sing, you know, bye, bye, bye from start to end, but we couldn't <laughs> sing like a Michael Jackson song <laughs> start to end. <laughs> It's so funny. It's funny because in the case of Iran in the post-revolution, I think the consumption of especially Western culture became like a point of resistance, right? It Mm -hmm. became a way of saying like, okay, if you're going to deprive us of this culture, we're going to consume it more than they consume it. And because I experienced that myself, every time I would travel to Iran, you know, there's certain things that to your point, we would just take it for granted. You know, it's not that you had other artists that you listened to, so you didn't have to sort of, there was no need to consume the culture in the same way. You just consumed it that you not the way that you naturally did. Mm-hmm. But in Iran, I remember there were so many encounters like that where it was like, they were telling me like, how do you not know this? I'm like, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. Like I just I wasn't paying attention to like X genre of music or something like that, you know? So it's this need to consume things that are, outside of what you would think is like the purview of anybody living under the Islamic Republic. And for me, the most interesting experience was being in Iran during Valentine's day. <laughs> yeah. It's... Wait, have you ever been in Iran during Valentine's day? I have. Yes. It's crazy. No. Hi, fill me in. It's incredible. It's like Hallmark threw up over Tehran, just like <laughs> the over how seriously they take it is quite insane because like here, I remember thinking I have never cared about Valentine's day. And then I was in Iran for one Valentine's day when I was in grad school, I was like, okay, I'm going to take the winter quarter. I'm going to go to Iran to do, you know, research. Um, and I thought one year I don't have to deal with Valentine's day. No, 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 no. Not only did I have to deal with it, I was shamed in the classic Iranian way of like, you don't celebrate Valentine's Day? You don't have a Valentine? I'm like, oh my God, it's worse yeah, here than I, in the States. I think it's so interesting that what you're speaking to, Asal, because it's like, it's this, it's not just about like, are you Iranian enough? Or are you American enough? Like when you're in America, are you American enough? And when you're in Iran, are you Iranian enough? It's also this idea that when you're in Iran as an American, are you American enough to what they understand an American to be? So it's like, do you celebrate Valentine's day the way like we understand that American or the way that like material culture tells them Americans are supposed to celebrate 
Valentine's Day? Or do you know Michael Jackson the way that we understand or material culture has told us that you're supposed to under, like know Michael Jackson? Or um, another one that happens to me regularly is if one is when someone who's Iranian finds out that I'm studying English literature, they'll say, have you read? And then they'll say like their favorite classic novel. And if I say no, then it's like, how are you studying English literature and you haven't read this, right? Like, it's like how, like you, either your education is flawed or, and then the same goes yeah. for when you're here. You haven't and read every book There's a conception of what it means. What? I, I didn't hear what you said. No, just go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. No, no. I just said I mean, you haven't read every book written. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Every good book out there. Um, but then when you're in, when you're in America and like, there's a conception of what it means to be Iranian. And then there's that same question too. Like, Oh, you don't do this thing. Like, how are you, how, how are you still like claiming Iranian identity? You know, it goes both ways. The interesting thing about identity is that there's a notion that an individual is supposed to speak on behalf of so many people, mm-hmm. right? Like, if you, when you're the one traveling to Iran, you become the lens through which they see America as if you can be representative of America in any way. And that's what happens to us here, right? Like we're constantly supposed to be representative of not only our diaspora, which is so distinct from people who are actually like living in Iran. Like that's why there's yeah. a separate word for it. Like being part of the diaspora is not the same thing as being someone who lives in Iran, but somehow we're supposed to be representative of both yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's so exhausting. It's exhausting growing up with that. It really is. So, well, I thought one line, you know, and it's sort of related to what we're talking about right now, but one line that really stood out to me in your essay was when you wrote in Iran, we were free. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And you can see why that line stuck out. Yeah, stuck out yeah, right? like that's yeah. Not the line you hear every day. And of course it runs counter to, and I don't think that it had, uh, it certainly doesn't have any political implications, but it's just conceptually interesting because so rarely is that line uttered, but I actually identified with it. And so Mm -hmm. I wanted you to talk more about, you know, what did you mean when you said in Iran, we were free? Yeah. So I think, I think it's, ultimately it comes down to just to put it so bluntly, it's that when, in Iran, you're free from whiteness in the way that it operates against you in America and this kind of constant, like kind of deluge of like that you're just inadequate, right? That you're never, you're never, you're never going to be white in the way that you, you, in the way that will give you access to, to that kind of like freedom from identity politics um, in America. And so I think, you know, now when I look back on that experience, like I clearly didn't under, I don't, I didn't understand this then in that's in, in this way. But I think now when I think back on it and knowing what I know and mainly, and having read the work that I've read by critical race theorists, like <clears throat> Nedo Marboule, whose book is incredible, The Limits of Whiteness. It's and incredible. Yeah, it's really great. And, um, and having read that kind of work and work by other um, critical race theorists, I, I recognize now that it's just, there's this, I felt this freedom that I couldn't put into words, but that now I understand it was a freedom from having to kind of, of being like subject to the kind of open and closing of the gates of whiteness. So like when you would kind of be allowed in and then when it would immediately be shut and you'd be pushed out. And it kind of, and I think she has this, this, this really great line in her book 
where she talks about the power of whiteness, Neda Makbula talks about the power of whiteness being in its like flexibility and its contractions and the way it bends and opens in the way that it's going to almost arbitrarily let you in one moment and then kick you out in another. And it's just totally out of your control. Right. And she says, I think I memorized this line because I found it so powerful was that whiteness is an imprecise business with incredibly high stakes. Um, and so I think the, for me, like going as a teenager, I, I wore hijab as a teenager. And so I was the only one in my high, very conservative high school um, or middle school at that point. And so it was constantly questions of like having to like having to be kind of cool enough or having to kind of be knowledgeable enough, at least to be some kind of like identity expert. So then that way you'd be let in or there isn't that constant negotiation just kind of like disappeared when I went back. And it was mainly because I also have such a big family that I was really surrounded by my family and I didn't have to deal with the society in the same, in the same way as a kind of traveler for three months. And I was surrounded by all these cousins my age. And so it was just like, it was just, I was just being a te- like teenager. Like it was, it was just fun. Like there was no sense that I had to be, um, that there was no sense that I was ever going to be ascribed to some kind of monolithic, like representation of anyone or anything. It was like what, you know, like whoever, whatever you wanted to be. Um, I felt like I could, like all those feelings felt normal. Like it here, whereas in like my middle school, it would have, it was the biggest deal that I had a crush on this white basketball player. Whereas there, right. Cause he was white and he was so different from my community, my culture. It was like impossible. And so it was this thing that was like, I had to daydream so hard about it to make it happen in my mind. Whereas there it was like, I could, I could like have a crush on any of you and kind of it might work. Like it's, the, the actual bridge was so, was so much easier, you know, at that age, at least in that understanding. You, so you actually, you grew up in Pleasanton, California, right? I kind of jumped around a lot, but most of the, in the beginning, we jumped around a lot because we didn't have, um, like my parents were saving up to kind of get a place. And so we moved from like Vallejo for a while, San Jose, Pleasant, but yeah, mostly Pleasanton. So it's just, it's fascinating because we spoke with Persis who I I grew up in the Walnut Creek area (laughs) and her story, um, was, you know, she's saying basically she kind of looked at you know, the unibrows and the mustaches and all of this the, that Iranians and honestly Iranian women deal with. And it was so fascinating to see that same line of thinking uh, throughout your piece. Um, and, you know, you were talking about being free in Iran. And I was wondering, was part of it also the fact that, I mean, I know I was bullied in school heavily for these types of things that we have yeah, talked about. Yeah. And was there a component of that where just like middle school cruelty or I guess the, the, I'm trying to think of the, but basically the fact that your Middle Eastern heritage was getting in the way physically of you being able to assimilate, or I mean, were you even trying to assimilate? I kind of hate that word. I hate that word. I think it's also just like not even a real concept. Good. So, <laughs> um, in the well, way okay, so that people understand it. So, okay. So let's rewind. Okay. You moved, when did you move to the US. It was like 2002 ish? No, I was three. So it was like 92. Um, oh, I see. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was three. I was like, yeah. I was born oh, in 88 and it's and three. So that's 90, 89. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a Was there a point in time? So then you basically did all your schooling here in the US. Yeah. Was there a point in time when this? 
when when all of this sort of emerged where it became more clear to you that like oh i'm i look different and people see me differently like when did that emerge for you that's a really good question um it's actually one i've been thinking about a lot recently because i've been writing more about my identity um and like my muslim american iranian identity kind of all three of them together and i've been thinking a lot about that and i'm not I think, you know, before I recognized that I was different, maybe I saw whenever anyone asks me or any kind of question like that, immediately when you ask me that question, I think of my mom, because I feel like I really, before I had a sense of understanding that I was different, I could see that my mom was different. You know, when we went anywhere out together, there was a sense that, okay, she, you know, she like, she, she wears, she, especially when we recently came from Iran, she would wear these long mantos. And, you know, these big, the, like the, they were, they were in style then, but they were like the big triangular scarves, you know, <laughs> like then, then there's all these, now there's like the rectangular ones, but then it was like the big triangular pattern ones, you know? Um, so she, like, I, like, as immediately when you asked that, when you asked me that, I just imagined being like looking up, up at her, you know, like being a little girl looking up at her in like a supermarket, which is something, which is kind of one of where one of my, worst kind of memories of like a family kind of pulling their kid away from us while we're standing in line. Like I have this, this memory that's just, I'll never forget, but like kind of pulling, pulling her, her kid away, her, her little girl away from us in, in the supermarket. And so I think it was what before that it was seeing my mom. And so I think kind of my journey to hijab was also through my mom and that kind of like seeing her kind of wear it as a form of like kind of embrace that identity of hers is different. It kind of, that's kind of where I understand how I also started to wear hijab was just some seeing that kind of the way my mom took that on as, as she entered and went outside every day. And so, yeah, so I don't, I don't really know. I think it was like before I had a sense of myself, it was a sense of her or our family, you know? You know, I, I loved when you're describing your mom um, and her sort of like religiosity, the fact that yeah. she's praying so much, um, and obviously that lends itself to the title of the story. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to, and I don't want to give away too much because I want people to read it. Um, but what I found fascinating about reading it was how candid you were about it. And the reason is because, you know, in, because of the politics of Iran mm-hmm. um, and the fact that it, you know, after the revolution, they create what is a supposed Islamic Republic and it's supposed to be somehow emblematic of the yeah. religion. And so this becomes for an entire generation sort of, uh, you know, something, something negative, right? The religion yeah. becomes negative in and of itself. And mm-hmm. so it was interesting because in Iran, obviously the religiosity is, is plain, right? You just, you see it everywhere. The fact that there are, of course, there are secular people, there are atheists in Iran, just like there are everywhere else in the world. Like there's this spectrum of religious belief, but religiosity is part of uh, that culture as well. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we try to be so divorced from it in the diaspora that it was refreshing to see someone speak so candidly of just piety, just, you know, of a mom, because, you know, my own mother, I remember my mom fasting when I was a kid. She doesn't do it anymore you know, in her own sort of religiosity has evolved through the years. A lot of that having to do with the politics in Iran, but it's so frustrating to have to be divorced from a part of your identity because of fear. And that's what I really liked in it is that you didn't, um, 
you didn't shy away from it. Whereas I think a lot of people in our community do do that. Um, in looking at it, you know, do you, cause you described it a little bit, how that was a point of adversity, right? Because of the physical manifestation of being religiously pious and being like Muslim. So I wonder, have you seen like that terrain be different? Do you see other Iranians who identify as being sort of Muslim as well? Do they, do you think they, they hide that part? Do you think they're just, cause I found that fascinating. I rarely see a, a young Iranian voice speak so candidly about being Muslim and about being religious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's largely because, so, I mean, the, the community that I grew up with was a Muslim Iranian community. And like, we all kind of, all my friends who my, all my childhood friends, we all have these different experiences with, um, hijab and fasting. And so the community's there, you know? And so I think what's, what happens is that because of all the politics that you've, that you've just described so succinctly, but so well, people, Iranians get pigeonholed as secular in America and then they get, or, and, or they get pigeonholed as Muslim American in America. And then those two kind of have their own, like, they're not speaking to, they're not like kind of coming together in one collection, you know? And so that's actually one of the things I've really liked about this anthology is that I think it's not just about showing to the, to, to people in the world that, Oh, Iranian, there is, we're not monolithic and look at, there's such a diversity of voices and there's so many different experiences of Iran. It's also kind of doing that work for one another. I think it's, it's also a book for Iranians to also realize like, look, we're not, just so you know, we're not, as you know, but maybe you need to see we're not like all the same. There isn't a monolith. Like we're, there, there's going to be so many different experiences. Um, so yeah, I think it's I think it's more just a um I think that is much more a result of the way like of of feeding of feeding this material into a consumer culture and like what we kind of expect that culture to look like rather than actually any experience of um Iranians and Muslims and Americans and all three or two or of those identities. You know what I really loved <clears throat> about this is that you were able to speak so frankly about being Muslim, but at the same time, you were also very uh, honest and upfront about boys being in the picture, for example. Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 great because there was this, um, honestly, any teenager could have read it and still felt that, like, I like a boy, I don't want to tell my parents, or if you have strict parents, they have to yeah. stay away. <laughs> so I, was, I guess that's my question is, like, how do you grow up? I mean, clearly you've had your own journey. Um, and so, you know, I, I would love to hear more about that. I'm, you went, I guess you wore a hijab and then I suppose you don't wear a hijab anymore. Yeah. Um, so that's, I, I mean, if you want to share that story, please feel free. <laughs> but I, I mean, like, how do you, how do we, how do you consolidate that? How do you explain that to people that like being Muslim does not preclude you from engaging in like the rest of the world's activities? <laughs> No, really, I'm serious. I feel like a lot of people, including in the Iranian community, when you say you're Muslim, they immediately think that there are all these doors shut. Yeah. They think it's like a reversal of opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. No, No, I mean, it's laughable because of how ridiculous it is, but you're 100% (laughs) correct in the fact that that is how it is perceived. Yeah. I mean, I like the, you know, as a hijabi um, teenager, like from through high school and the first year or two of college, I didn't just face Islamophobia from, um, like, you know, like white Americans. I also had like faced a lot of Islamophobia from Iranians, 
like it was just like it was you know like a lot of Iranians would be like if they like there was if I wanted to go to some kind of dance party they would be like why are you going to a dance party aren't you Muslim like they would I'd have to do this kind of constant explaining to them too um in terms of like explaining I I think that I don't know. I think that at the end of the day, I really, I, I kind of almost always come back to um, this, the work of like critical race theorists and the way they kind of like, and Neda Mahbula's work. Like I, I just find that that's been so generative for me or Tressie McMillan Cotton's essay thick, where she also talks about kind of the flexibility and the contractions and the way that whiteness kind of operates and kind of allowing and disallowing certain people. And I, I always kind of come back to that whenever there's questions like this, because I feel like at the end of the day, like these aren't real, these aren't real distinctions, right? Like you, that you're like a teenager and that you have a crush on a boy, but you're also Muslim. And there's certain things that you do as a Muslim and that, um, that if, and if you go against them, you're somehow, I think these are really like definitions that constraints that we kind of, that have been imposed onto these identity categories as a way of understanding them in order to subject them to some kind of, restriction or like you know oppression at the end ultimately like some kind of Islamophobia some kind of oppression so I don't I like I almost always resist to kind of explain how they're not that they're not real because I think that itself is also kind of buying into that game and I don't I don't want to play the game because the game is rigged right the game is always going to say that you're not Iranian American and if you are you have to kind of you can't be both unless you kind of go through these longer elaborations about you working through how you're both. And it's like, no, you're, you're both. And the only one, the only thing that's telling you that you're not both is this kind of category of white of this identity category of whiteness. That's disallowing you from being both right. That you have to kind of, are you Iranian American and therefore more white or are you Iranian? And so therefore like just Iranian, you know, like it's, it's the, like there, there's no point into going down into those because there's, there is at the end of them, there is no, the hyphenated identity is not, it's almost not real. You know, it's just, it's, that's actually fascinating. I was on, I spent I think too much time on Twitter at like 7am, but somebody had said that you're only an American. If you're white, everybody else is hyphenated. Exactly. Uh, and it's, exactly. I think that sort of brings me back to that. That's exactly, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. That's put so well. That's like the, the, the point of Twitter, right? That takes all that I just said and it says it in that one. <laughs> In well, that, that was probably guaranteed. That was the only good tweet that came out of Twitter today. <laughs> I promise you. But, but yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's, that's put so well. It's funny because all of it really, uh, you know, comes down to a power dynamic. And we were talking exactly. earlier about being teased. Um, my cousins in Iran teased me nonstop, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Just nonstop from my physical appearance to my accent when I spoke Persian to mm-hmm. my attempts to learn to read and write Persian, which was uh, <laughs> extraordinarily hilarious to them. Um, <laughs> but I didn't ever feel, you know, I would laugh with them. And the yeah. reason is because we were on the same power dynamic, right? We were level. It wasn't yeah. like someone was teasing me because they were superior to me. They were just teasing me in good fun. Whereas when I got teased as a kid by, you know, like other white kids, it, it didn't feel the same. It felt like I was internalizing that sense of being inferior to this like larger group that I wasn't just not part of. Um, and no, yeah. you know, I was born here, but the, no matter how much you tried to move around it, you just weren't part of that group. 
Um, and the other thing I really liked about what you said about the, this, this book and how it, that prejudice that you sort of dealt with, uh, in terms of the religious side, in terms of being like a Muslim, yeah. wasn't just with Americans, but Iranian Americans as well. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes think that this anthology, you know, is, is very, very good for a non-Iranian audience, right? Like that's what we strive for always is like, look, stop car- making us into caricatures. Yeah. Here's this like beautiful anthology of diverse stories. And it gives you a glimpse of what our community is really like. But I always find it fascinating that really our own community needs it more than anybody else. It's our community that lacks this ability to understand our own diversity because we try to caricature ourselves. To me, it's always self-orientalizing, right? It's because of our inferiority, that feeling of inferiority that we've so deeply internalized that we desperately want to be part of something else. And we do that, I mean, we do that with our history all the time, right? So this is why we have to go back 2,500 years to find pride. But I don't know why we can't find pride in the things that we have now. Why do you have to go so far back? You know, like I, um, I laugh at my own parents sometimes. God, I love them, but they're such fascinating little people. Um, when they talk, like my mom is Azerbaijani Turk, right? And when you look at my my parents and their complexions, you see the diversity of Iran right there. One is, you know, just white as snow and the other one is quite dark. And the two of them, when they talk about sort of this notion of Cyrus and this old civilization, I'm like, you know, neither of you were probably there, right? Like <laughs> your descendants are not from that same plateau that we're talking about right now. And yet you speak, we brim with pride when talking about it. But I'm like, why, why can't you take pride in things that we have now? And I think always we're trying to divorce ourselves from these, these other aspects. And the other thing that the anthology gets into, and you get into a little bit too, is secrets. Mm-hmm. We have secrets. Yeah. And that's why we're able to compartmentalize and, and create these distinctions because we're not being honest. Like mm. We're just not being honest yeah. as a community. And this, this anthology really like rips that open and offers all of these really, really honest stories. And that's why I loved reading your essay. It was just felt like someone who was being authentic, who was just yeah. being their authentic self, not trying to create a caricature of themselves, not trying to defend themselves against anything yeah. else, but just, this is what it is. This is who I am. And so refreshing in our yeah, community to see yeah. something like that. Yeah, I mean, you put it so well. That that point of the point of secrets is just it, it shows up in so many of the essays, right? Everyone is a secret, and the secret is always somehow tied to what's expected of you as insert X, like as you know, um, like an Iranian. What's expected of you as whoever you are or are expected to be. Um, yeah, I think that that's that's such a that's such a great way to put it. And and yeah, I really I really do think that. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's almost like it should be kind of um, alarming for us as we if as we read these and we kind of are like, wow, you know, look at people who kind of embody all these different identities. It should it should feel alarming to us at why we didn't expect that, you know, as like given given that we're like we like even me, like I I claim to be well informed and care and everything and and being caught by surprise by just a dynamic identity or like kind of um, people having that things that I think are secrets or secrets in this book are just surprising to me. You know, they're kind of um, wake up calls. Um, Without giving too much away, because I want people to actually go read yeah. Um, I, I, spoiler, your mom did not actually kill Michael Jackson. <laughs> um, but it does end uh, with mm. him dying. Yeah. And 
I like I said, I think a lot of Iranians have a specific association with Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. And for me, I um that was in I believe June two thousand nine. Yeah. And it was like twelve days after sort of the green movement protests had started. And so I had just started volunteering for an Iran-focused human rights organization around that time. And I remember when I saw Michael Jackson trending on Twitter, guys, 2009, I was an early adopter. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm, just kidding. Um, I'm not proud to have been on Twitter for like 11 years. No, no. But I mean, I saw Michael Jackson trending and I clicked on it and I'd seen that he died. And I think the first thing I thought was the protests are over. Nobody cares uh-huh. anymore. The, wor- the attention of the world is gone are the Iranians themselves even going to care? Um, so I guess like, what was your, I mean, you, you did talk about your own reaction, but mostly within the framework of your sister, yeah. which again, I, I'm not going to give it away, but I was wondering Asal and, you know, Shukov, both of you, what, what was the meaning of that for you guys or what association do you have with Michael Jackson's dad? Oh man. Um, I think, I think what Michael Jackson provided for me was this is kind of like, I'll, I'll try to keep this short, but like this, um, I think there's so many, it's just tied to so many things, as you can tell from the essay, like it's tied to so many parts of my identity. But I think one of the things that, um, immigration kind of immigration is, a and so let me, let me back up for a second. So Dr. Gila Behnad, who I recently listened to on a podcast, um, called that relationship show. Um, she was talking about really well about, and really interestingly and beautifully about how immigration immigrating is a, is a process of grief. And that as soon as you immigrate, you kind of are, are starting this like grieving process of of this huge loss. Right. And I think when you, when I immigrated at the age of three, I didn't understand, like I was also grieving, but I didn't understand what I was grieving in ways that maybe my mom who immigrated much older, with two kids, like she and my mom and my dad, like they had these very concrete things that they could latch their grief onto. Right. Like, so they had, like, I'm grieving the fact that I used to live in this certain place and I don't anymore. Whereas for me at the age of like, I don't even have memories of the house we lived in in Iran. I don't like, I don't have like objects that I held onto from that point. Whereas my mom was like, my wedding dress is still there. Right. So there's like this very concrete place that her grief could latch onto. And I think when Michael Jackson provided for me when without realizing it was kind of this sense of nostalgia when I went back to Iran that was like this is this this is what I was grieving right it became the soundtrack to this like kind of experience that may help me realize like these were the things that I had missed like I like I was missing family like I was like I didn't have family or just a feeling of belonging or a feeling of acceptance or a feeling of just being allowed to kind of be a teenager and so I feel like when he died, um, or even when I think about his death now, it kind of just fills me with like a sense of fear because I thought like that, that was kind of where that kind of became the landscape on which all these different things like latched onto for me that I could kind of look at or listen to at any time of the day and kind of call back when I like, when I felt like a kind of emptiness, I'd be like, Oh, this is, I'm going to listen to this. I'm going to remember this, this experience. And it's going to kind of bring that back for me. And so I think when he died, there was for me like a sense of fear that, um, that I wasn't going to be able to kind of collect that whole experience into something so concrete anymore, you know? Um, Yeah. 
It's interesting that you're, because uh, you're talking about obviously the sort of end of the essay is when um, Michael Jackson dies. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you mention is that you're, because when you're describing your trips to Iran every year, um, and this is again, like the parts that I just absolutely identified with, it was like, you were waiting it out in California and then yeah. it was like, oh, I get to Iran, you know, now I get yeah. to go to Iran. Okay. Back to California. Yeah. It almost felt like it was reversed, right? The place that you lived was Iran, not because of the duration of time, but because of the feeling that, like, that it gave you what you had mentioned earlier about feeling yeah. like free. And then in the end of the essay, when it comes to the death, and I wonder if it's related to what you were saying now, it's, you say the, your life in California and your life in Iran never felt so far apart mm-hmm. and that you didn't know it at the time, but that you would never feel, or you would never be that close to Iran again ap- after that point. So I was so curious and it made me really sad because I think I, uh, again, like I can completely relate to that sort of arc of when you almost like you're discovering Iran yeah. and then when you have to let go of that discovery because you just like life takes over, you yeah. know? But so yeah. I wondered what was, what was that like for you when you sort of have this line that you add there? And I think it's so powerful. Yeah. I just wanted to hear more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That afternoon, our living room and our life in California felt so far away. So separate from Iran. What we didn't know then was that Iran would never feel close again. I think it was because no one, no one in our close like community, in America was grieving the loss the way they were in Iran. Right. And so it's again, this kind of thing where you're like, you're, you're grieving something, but it's not, it's not concretely there. And so it, it felt like it was there, you know, like it felt like in our, our cousins in Iran had this like overwhelming sense of grief and they were really, really upset and um, they were processing it together in a way that we couldn't. And so and in a way that those experiences, like they were reliving these experiences, these like the memories that it provided for them. And it was something that we also couldn't do. And, but I think it also just culminated. And I don't think I talk about this a lot in this essay, but I think it, that his death also, also just culminated with a kind of um, a moment in our life where we were like, like you're saying so well, as I like, we're just growing. Right. So like we're moving past that kind of teenage, like, like, kind of where you hang on to nostalgia forever, you know, phase. And you're just, you kind of have to like, let go. So we, life just kind of made it so that we didn't, weren't going back to eat on as often. And so, you know, and then this concert where some of my cousins might've also been able to go just kind of canceled and fell apart. So my sister wasn't going to go anymore and see them. Um, and so it's kind of, it's this, I don't know, it's this, it's, it's this strange timing that like, it's like this moment of growth in our life where kind of life is going to take over also coincided with this death. That was kind of the end of a lot of like the soundtrack of memories and yeah. And I think, you know, at the end, I, and you know, in the end of the essay, I, my mom and I kind of have this exchange um, where we basically kind of end with, I say, you know, you know, you never understood Michael Jackson. And she's like, what does that have to do with anything? And I, and she says, you don't understand what it feels like when someone leaves, like leaves you, like leaves your family. And I say, what does that have to do with anything? And so we have this moment where we kind of in his death, I think we also realize, and in the different ways that we were dealing with it, we also realize that there is, it becomes this place where we realize this kind of deep sense of, 
misunderstanding or just we're not going to understand certain things about each other's experiences and kind of just accepting that that like there's just at some point like the experiences you can't like you're not going to be able to relate to them anymore um and I think that's really what his death was was that who who's going to like who are we going to use as a point of relating to Iran now when we can't go back as much when he's dead when there isn't this like very point of commonality between us anymore. It's, you know, it's gone. Um, what, what happens next? I think what's so striking about this, and I hadn't thought about it until you said this so beautifully about the concept of grieving is that this grief isn't once, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like you leave and you grieve it and you work through it. Yeah, I think the, I think we see this grief basically our whole lives. And I think it comes up in waves because just because we're not part of that life in Iran doesn't mean that life in Iran isn't happening. It's that we don't get to be a part of it. So regardless of if it's a passing of a loved one and we can't go to their funeral or the marriage of a cousin, which is a happy occasion, all of this is accompanied by grief because we don't get to participate. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's why I found so incredibly generative and liberating about Dr. Gila Benan's like framing of that, that it, that it's grief and that it's always going to go through different stages and every day, like almost every day or every experience you're at one kind of stage. Right. So sometimes it's a wedding and you're, you're in denial, like, Oh, I'm going to go, you know, like I'm going to go to this wedding (laughs) here. Like that happens, you know, you're like planning and you're like, actually, no, I can't go. Or like the visa situation is just too overwhelming or I need to take my partner and I can't take my partner as like Dana um, talks about in her, in her beautiful essay in this book, um, or it's like, sometimes it's just acceptance or sometimes, I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's a very, it's, it's a grief that you have forever, you know, and, and it's kind of hard to figure out what you're grieving until you are able to kind of figure it out through different concrete experiences. And, um, and yeah, I, I don't think it's related to just like being an actual, like an immigrant. I think, I think different, there's different forms of that process of grief for different different immigration experiences or diasporic experiences. I think you can be born in Iran. I think you can be born in the United States and still have that kind of process of grief as you kind of realize you don't have any, you're, you're not permitted to have the kind of relationship or connection you want with a country that has shaped who you are. Yeah. And, uh, you know, using the sort of uh, motif of grief, it's interesting because in our culture, uh, we cope with grief through, through like social networks, through mm-hmm. community. Like yeah. that's how we cope. Yeah. Um, and so, and that's exactly actually what I meant when I said why these essays are so refreshing because it feels like, and now I think I can articulate it even better. It feels like we're coping. That's what it yeah. feels like when you're reading them. You know, it's not yeah. just that you're identifying with someone else's story, but it's like that grief that we all share. This is our way of having that community and coping with it. And so, I mean, I'm sad that this is our last interview within this series because I absolutely love this anthology and all of the essays and the authors that decided to, you know, take the time to actually talk with us about it. But that, that to me is the best description of what, what this really is. It's community coping. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Yeah. And I really hope that as people read it, they, it gives them that they have that feeling as well, that it's like that they're not just that, that we can cope with it as a community, but that there are so many different ways to cope with it and that they're all viable and um, they're all the right way, you know? It's fabulous. Uh, well, do you guys have anything else you'd like to add? No, no this I'm- is really great. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us, Shukufe. I really hope that we can have you on again. I know you're working on some other very cool projects, so you got to keep us updated so we can make sure to bring you back and talk about all of those. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so that concludes the final interview in our uh our essential our book talk on my shadow is my skin uh once again we'll make sure to include all the relevant links in the podcast description and thanks everybody yeah thank you thank you so much, thank you so much thank for you. doing this yeah, thank you bye, bye.